Howdy, folks. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of TGC Midweek. Jacob and Michael back with you on the pod. This week, continuing our series on the Westminster Confession of Faith, picking up with the second half of chapter one. But first, fellas, gentlemen, compadres, question of the week this week, a would-you-rather question of the sartorial variety, would you rather be chronically overdressed (laughs) or underdressed? Hmm. Hmm. Well, um, there's different ways to go about this because overdressed could mean you're the only one with a tie. Yep. But it also could mean you wore a tuxedo to a kid's birthday. So I think I would rather be chronically overdressed because there have only been situations in my life that I remember that have caused me regret when I've been underdressed. Mm -hmm. Very rarely am I overdressed. And I remember in high school going to a wedding or going to a funeral and not having a suit and tie on one time and telling myself that will never happen again. Mm -hmm. I can't go to these type of events and not be appropriately dressed. And so I also think it's rare for you to look at someone and look down on them for being overdressed it's far easier in my mind for an underdressed person to raise eyebrows. Yeah. Generally speaking. Yeah. But I've definitely scoffed at folks who have walked into something like this. Mm. Is, this was not the event for a pocket square, buddy. That is you know? true. <laughs> yeah. that is, but my, I guess my question is, which one would you rather? I'm thinking about it in terms of which one would I rather get in my car, drive home and think more about. Yeah, no, right. I, I get that. Yeah. I'm just pointing out there, there is an embarrassment to totally. being like, I'm the only one in a suit. <laughs> Everyone else is wearing jeans. If you go to the Super Bowl party in a suit in yeah. a pocket square, right? I've never done that, so I can't no. speak to it. I guess my answer is dictated on my past experience. Right. right. Yeah. So I'd probably have to go with uh, where I'd probably lean right now, which is I'd go chronically underdressed. And that's just because. I'm getting to the point in life where I don't care. Um, And most of the time, overdressed is uncomfortable. Underdressed, in my mind, means comfortable. Yep. And I'd rather be comfortable. So I'm kind of getting to that selfish curmudgeon stage of life where... (laughs) (laughs) Is that why you were wearing sweats to church on Sunday? Yeah, you know what? I didn't even notice. That was a, that's a joke. Oh. <laughs> My sweats look like jeans. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, so I, it probably a little bit of a counter to my upbringing, which was we probably were, as kids, dressed, overdressed. And so, uh, and I, I don't know, I'd just rather be comfortable. I mean, honestly, if you, if you can find clothes, if there's nice overdressed stuff that's actually comfortable, I'd probably buy into it. But most of the time I found that that overdressed dressy stuff, it's not very comfortable at all. Mm -hmm. And you you put up with it just because it quote unquote looks good. And so if I, so yeah, it's a combination of my own psychology at the moment at my age of life that I'd say, yeah, Bermuda shorts and, uh, you know, (laughs) there is though an emotional discomfort when you're way dressed down. Like your examples, Michael, everyone's 
a little dressed up and you're the only one in jeans yeah. or something. And the yeah. other, other, it's what kind of discomfort can you get? Yeah. Past? But then you get yes. all the guys coming up to you being like, dude, I wish I could wear that. My yeah, wife yeah. made me wear this. Yeah. But there is something to be said for if you dress well, it changes the way you feel that day. Uh-huh. And so if I'm dressed down, let's say in shorts and yeah. a t-shirt, which I love to do. In fact, I wish I, if and when we get to the status <laughs> of don't care anymore, that would be awesome. Um, but I'm not entirely there now, but it I'm, makes, I'm it makes you feel different as you tackle your day. Yeah, that's true. And even during COVID, it's a perfect example. I mean, how many of us were in our pajamas all day, most days? And uh, what did they say? They, quote unquote, <laughs> they would say, you know, you need to take a shower and get dressed. Take care of yourself. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and you'll get those folks. I think, uh, is it Jordan Peterson? Who I think he's got a... a he's normally a, overdressed. Well, he's got a YouTube video that addresses dressing. Yeah. So he's like, men should wear suits. It, you know, kind of, and I haven't really listened to it. I just saw kind of the highlight of it. And I was just like, all right. Uh, just because, you know, I... The only time you catch me in a, in a suit is when it's mandated by the court that I wear... Mm-hmm. Courtly attire, right? Because yes, I just, yeah. I just call it the monkey suit. The monkey suit. Well, I once heard in San Antonio, you know, you're a banker or a lawyer if you see someone if if you're wearing a tie. Yeah, yeah very rarely legit. in San Antonio is somebody wearing a tie if they're not a banker or a lawyer or a car salesman or yeah, car par- salesman <laughs> or a charter school teacher in my Perhaps, kids, yeah, uh, school's yeah. case. They, all the men have to wear ties if they're teaching. What about you, Jacob? So I, where are you coming down? Do you got fifty? I, one on each. Yes, I've tried to offer the counterpoint for both of your examples to leave a little bit of a mistake. But I, the uh, the dean of the business college when I was in school, Doctor Smith, the business college was like it was all it was business, but also, um, like the the um creative in a marketing sense side of the marketing school. So it was there were a lot of like graphic designers in the business college. And he was kind of in that vein. And so he was a pretty snappy dresser, very colorful pocket squares and stuff. And he once told me, you can never, ever, ever be overdressed. Huh. So I think if I had to choose, well, it, it's not even like a tough call for me. I would rather be chronically overdressed. I think society is too casual and dressed down anyway. And I say this wearing a hoodie and tennis shoes. Okay. But I think I think people I think we should get back to a, a place where people wear suits and hats and you know uh, know how to tie more than one different tie knot. The fact that I was I was a groomsman at my sister's wedding recently. The fact that rental tuxes come with clip-on bow ties is atrocious. Yeah, it's it's the sartorial equivalent of when you get a assemble it yourself furniture and it assumes that you don't have a screwdriver. And so all of them are those stupid little Allen key things Uh because they can't assume that you have a screwdriver, just like men's warehouse cannot assume that you know how to tie a bow tie. Well, one one man's atrociousness is another man's grace from God. (laughs) (laughs) Tying a bow tie is easier than tying a regular tie. You know how the first step is you get on your phone and you type how to tie bow tie and you spend six minutes watching a video and practicing it, and then you're done. That's it. You know it for life. It's a skill. So, Never looks bad to look good. That's the phrase that came to mind, too. There you go. I like it. Good deal. Well, guys, I'm expecting a lot more out of you next oh, week. Oh, there's you. you so. <laughs> I'm wearing flip-flops <laughs> <Yeah>. right now. <laughs> well, uh, fellas, 
Let's continue this week now looking at the second half of chapter one of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Michael, any just brief wrap up from last week that you want to offer to give us a running start? I don't think so. I think we can jump right in. Uh, We covered sections one through five of chapter one last week, and it's dealing with the Holy Scriptures, this first chapter. And so I think we can move right into section six this evening and get through section 10 by the end of our time together. All right. Well, section six says this, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human action and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. Great. This is a very interesting section, and the gist of it is that Scripture is all we need from God for glory, uh, salvation, faith, and life. Uh, But we both know that the Scripture doesn't talk about all things. It Mm -hmm. doesn't address brain surgery, rocket science, uh, doesn't address, you know, the golf swing. Um, that would be amazing if it did. <laughs> um, but it, it, it addresses all things that we need for God's glory, our salvation, faith, and life. And there are some principles um, that uh, we can draw out from Scripture. If there's not details, mm-hmm. we can take principles and draw details from those principles. And that's what the confession is talking about when it says good and necessary consequence. And so, for instance, the scripture never actually mentions the word Trinity. But through good and necessary consequence, as we study the scriptures, we can draw that doctrine from the pages that we read. The scriptures never talk about sex before marriage explicitly. Off the top of my head, at least, I don't think they do. It would be an instance where we are drawing good and necessary consequence to say, uh, obviously, sex is between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. I think we would say Scripture says that, but what about singles that never get married? Um, We would would say from good and necessary consequence, um, we would make judgment calls on what is good, true, and beautiful, what is right, what is wrong um, from the principles that, that we read. And the other thing I love about this section is it talks about something we mentioned last week, the the difference between revelation. There can be no new revelation that we are going to receive. We've got all that we need to understand God's glory, the path to salvation, faith and life. But the Holy Spirit still does bring illumination uh, to individual Christians and to Christians corporately as a whole as they continue to study the Scriptures So it's one of those things where you can read John 15, for instance, a hundred times, and after you read it the hundredth time, you might see something new that you've never seen before. And it's not that the Lord has added any new revelation, but the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes to see something that is true that maybe we bypassed in the past. Which has always been there. 
not unique oh, yep. to your reading or your experience. It's always been there, plain for everyone to see, but the spirit illuminates it to you at that time. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Um, G, are you going to say something? You got your finger on the button. <laughs> finger on the button. Um, I've heard, uh, you guys have probably heard this around in the church where you get into discussions with folks and inevitably someone plays, uh, maybe there's a debate, a friendly debate, or maybe not so friendly debate. And someone plays the, what's your verse on that card? And so you kind of get, go back and forth. It sounds to me like the, like the divines are almost chiming in to that discussion. And maybe I think we talked about earlier that they're, they were a little bit of against proof texting. Yeah. And it sounds like here they're kind of pushing back saying, hey, there are some things that, yeah, you're going to have a verse that's directly on topic. Mm-hmm. But then there seems to be like, concentric circles moving out from that that you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I don't know. It, it's more of a, man, it's really a question. It's more of just an observation of, uh, it sounds like they, the divines are kind of chiming into. Hey, be careful with having to proof text everything yep. that you see in church or in everything you see in a Christian's life. Yep. Um, They're allowing the possibility of sanctified common sense to mm-hmm. come into play and wisdom. And I love at the end of this section where it says that um, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. Perfect example of this. Um, The general rule of the word, which is always to be observed, is to worship the Lord on the Sabbath by setting aside a day for rest and for corporate worship with his saints. Uh, Where Christian prudence comes into play there is what time should we worship? Can we worship at 5 p.m.? Do we have to worship at 10 a.m.? What about if you're a church full of early risers and would prefer to worship at 8 a.m.? All of that has to do with Christian prudence. You've got maximum freedom there Mm -hmm. as long as you're staying within the parameters of the general rules of God's Word, which are always to be observed. And so uh, liturgy, Um, you know, what should and should we not do in the liturgical order of a worship service? And certainly there are things, and you're getting into what the Reformers call the regulative principle of worship here. We want to worship God according to how He desires to be worshipped in His Word. But should the confession of faith come at the beginning of the service or before the Lord's Supper? And certainly there's wisdom to be regarded from how other Christian brothers and sisters have done it through the centuries. But there's a lot left to Christian prudence and how we order our liturgical service, and even what elements uh, we include or sometimes decide to leave out. I mean, if you go to different PCA churches, they're celebrating the Lord's Supper at different intervals. We do it weekly. There's other PCA churches that do it monthly. And that would fall under this category of Christian prudence while still abiding by the general rules of the Word and celebrating the Lord's Supper. It just never mentions explicitly how often we should celebrate it on the pages of the scriptures. Yep, I think the um, the principle and consequence example there of worshiping on the Lord's Day versus what time do we hold the service is a perfect example there. I do want to we we've kind of talked about two things here, and I want to kind of draw 
some, I don't know, circles around these two things. Um, within this section here, there is some language about that we can that we can deduce things from scripture, even if they are not expressly written, uh, expressly written there. Uh, the language it says is, um, by good and necessary, necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture. That's sort of point number one. And that is sort of the, um, the examples we talked about, um, first, like the biblical sexual ethic, like you, you can't proof text it. I mean, you can maybe draw some evidence from mm-hmm. here or there, but there's not like a or, or the Trinity, right? There's not a specific verse that says it yep. in in clear language, but can be clearly deduced from the whole of the Bible. Um, then there's this other point that this section calls out, which is the second point we've been talking about, which is there are things which are not, um, which are consequences and not core principles of Scripture. Um, and I just didn't want to blend these two things together. So you have yep. you have the principles which themselves may come out of um, deduction from Scripture, not exact language itself. Mm-hmm. Those are the principles versus you know everyday circumstances which you know Christian liberty reigns, and, yep. and uh, we can as long as we're following those principles can work those out. A great way to think about it is good. I think you're hitting on good and necessary consequence is different than Christian prudence. Mm -hmm. And so we draw out good and necessary consequence and can make that actually a standard. Yes, exactly. Even in Christian doctrine worldwide. But when it comes to Christian prudence, we have Christian liberty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in some of those areas that we mentioned, like time of worship. Those are the two key points, I think, called out by this section here. Yeah, visually, uh, just what you guys are saying, visually I see it kind of as Scripture on point being the center circle. The outer, then there's a, a ring outside of that that Scripture speaks into, and then outside of that is the liberty circle. And so you can kind of, visually that's the way I kind of think about it. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but the kind of the three concentric circles that, and the further out you get, kind of like scripture is a little less present. Yep. It's more distant, um, but it's still there undergirding all, th- you know, the two circles that it doesn't exactly, it's not, you know, clear. The What's the word? Perspicuity? Yeah, we'll get to that here in section seven. <laughs> but the But the Christian sexual ethic is a perfect example here. We would place that in the core. Yeah. Core principle, uh, core principle uh, that can't be violated, um, drawn out of good and necessary consequence from what we understand in God's word. Mm-hmm. Yep, very good. Um, moving on then to section seven, it reads like this: All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other, that not only the learned but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. So here I think a couple of things we ought to tease out is, what are those things which are necessary to be known? What does it mean in due use of ordinary means? And what would be a sufficient understanding? Yes, and this is hitting on the word that Guillermo just brought up, perspicuity. 
I don't think it actually mentions that word in section seven, but it's the idea that there is a see-throughableness or a clarity to Scripture. And one of the key rules to interpreting Scripture is that Scripture interprets itself. And so if you come along and find uh, an obscure passage that's hard to understand, the principle here is that there are other places in Scripture that you can go to that are more simple and plain that will help you interpret that harder passage of Scripture. And Scripture will never contradict itself. And so uh, as you come upon those harder passages, you can read them through the lenses of the easier ones that you actually know uh, and move it through that filter. Um, the other thing uh, that, and I want to get to your questions uh, for sure, and maybe this this will get to them here by by moving just through some highlights of section seven. But anyone can come to a knowledge of salvation, and that's the thing. This is talking about salvation. Yep. Um, there are some things that are very hard to understand in the scriptures that need technical, theological, or um, cultural, or linguistic knowledge that not every person has. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyone can come to a knowledge of salvation. And you got to think about when this was written in the late 17th century. This was contra Rome. This is, this is the divines reacting yeah. uh, to the Pope and the Roman church. Anyone can come to a knowledge of salvation. And it's really getting at the priesthood of all believers, the doctrine that was rediscovered in the Reformation with Martin Luther, that anyone uh, can know God because we don't need a priest, we have a priest, the great high priest, Jesus Christ, uh, who leads us into the presence of God the Father. And so anyone can come to a knowledge, and and it's talking about all men without distinction, obviously, um, the learned and the unlearned, um, but also recognizing that sometimes technical knowledge helps, and that the creeds, church confessions, they're all subordinate to the scriptures, which are the real authority. Um, and so there are a lot of hard things to understand. Second Peter 3.16 actually talks about that, uh, where, where Timothy even addresses the fact that there are hard things in God's Word uh, to stomach and to wrap your mind around, but all that's necessary for salvation through the due use of ordinary means, which would simply be the reading of Scripture, mm-hmm. the engagement in community, um, prayer, listening to gospel-based biblical preaching, those are ordinary means that God uses to bring people to understanding of salvation. Um, and if you use those ordinary means, uh, you can attain a sufficient understanding of salvation, uh, which is basically an understanding of your sin, an understanding of the person and work of Jesus, and the understanding that all it takes is faith alone uh, to become a Christian. Yeah. And all of those things are basically a, a simple reading of the text, the learned, the unlearned, whether you're educated or not. Those are the things which are clear in Scripture. That's the main thrust of God's Word. God has not spoken to us in uh, riddles or strange messages but in a way where all of his people can understand it and in a way that doesn't rely on um, any kind of mediating human institution to make clear what God has not said clearly, as it were. Yep, absolutely. So, any other thoughts on 
section seven there before we move on? You know, the, the thought I have in mind, and I haven't really checked this out against much, but I mean, even going through Galatians on Sunday morning, like some of those passages can be hard to understand. But as we engage a due use of the ordinary means, which could just be a preacher standing up yeah. and simply explaining, here's how this verse relates to that verse. Here's what Paul was thinking about in the original context. Uh, that is the church at large bringing clarity to the scriptures or perspicuity to it. And so it doesn't always have to have to happen. And I think there's an individual aspect of the perspicuity of the scriptures for sure. And I, 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 I would imagine that's mainly what the divines are talking about here, that individually any man or woman, learned or unlearned, can come to a knowledge of salvation. There's also a corporate aspect to the perspicuity of scripture. Mm-hmm where as a community, as we gather around God's Word, and even in Bible study, I mean, I think about Tuesday morning, you know, we have encountered some difficult passages in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and I know a little bit, maybe more, not to, you know, toot my own horn, but just simply by being engaged in the Scriptures in a more in-depth way than a normal person has over the years. But even... Even sometimes I don't really understand what the author or the narrator is saying in Genesis, but we had a beautiful moment this past Tuesday where we were talking about what does it mean that Adam and Eve's eyes were opened and they became like God? Because they were already made in God's image. And so they were already in God's image, but they became like God knowing good and evil. What did that mean? And I really felt like after five to ten minutes of discussing it with believers and the Holy Spirit in our midst, we came to a good conclusion that everybody was satisfied with, and I think checked out theologically. Hmm. And so, you know, it's not like anybody knew the exact answer in the moment, but we worked it out with the Spirit's help, um, I believe, and and came to a conclusion that, you know, all 12 guys in the room felt good about. Yeah, yeah. Perspicuity of the Scripture right there. There it is. Um, So there is one question I, I wanted to ask you. So the last part here where it talks about a sufficient understanding of them, I think that causes me to ask, what does it mean to have a sufficient understanding? Because it's it's saying that um, even the uneducated, by engaging the ordinary means of grace, like prayer, reading the Bible, um, attending uh, corporate worship, hearing the Bible preached, participation in the sacraments, like this, these ordinary means of grace an uneducated person can come to a sufficient understanding. That would imply that there is such a thing as insufficient understanding. Yep. So how would we understand, like, how much understanding do I need for it to be sufficient? I mean, I can't help but think of early on in Acts when, you know, Peter's preaching and people are asking, what must I do to be saved? Yeah. And it's a very simple answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ through faith and you'll receive salvation. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's that's the that's what the divines are getting at when they're talking about sufficient understanding of them. What is them? Well, it's what needs to be believed and observed for yeah. salvation. Um so you're going back up into the section to understand what that uh sufficiency means, sufficient unto what. But I also think, you know, in our reformed world, uh we have a tendency to require too much. Yeah. And I think it, it's helpful to understand what sufficient understanding is by seeing what the opposite of it 
might be. And that's like, you've got to know where you line up eschatologically, you know, with regard, you know, end times theology or, uh, you've got to you've got to be able to parse the Greek and the Hebrew. Yeah. Um. You've got to uh, be able to explain the Trinity to a three year old. You've got to you know you fill in the blank. Um. That would be way beyond what the divines mean when they're talking about sufficient understanding. I think of the um, membership questions that you'll ask new members, especially like um, children making a profession of faith on Sunday morning. It's pretty simple. Like. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner? Do you acknowledge your need for Jesus? Yep. And it's like that kind of captures, I think, what a sufficient understanding is. The bar is actually quite low, but those truths are profound. Yep. That's a great point. And in fact, this past Sunday, we received Barrett Simpson into membership, and I asked him the adult questions. Oh. And they're hard to understand for a six- and seven-year-old. We're going to have another little girl come and profess faith this upcoming Sunday, and I'm going to ask her the kid questions, and you'll see just how simple. They're, they're basically what you do. Do you, yeah. believe in G, do you believe you're a sinner? Do you believe Jesus came to save you from your sin? Do you want to help the church grow strong? Mm-hmm. Do you want to follow its leadership? Do you want to tell other people about Jesus? That's about it. Mm-hmm. And if they can say yes, 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 yes to those five things— then they've made a profession of faith that is sufficient in our minds. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I, I, I'd love to highlight here is uh, when we talk about sufficient understanding and how people articulate it, I also think about age-appropriate profession of faith. Mm-hmm. A six-year-old is going to have a different articulation than a 35-year-old, than a 50-year-old. Uh, somebody that just came to Jesus is going to be able to articulate their faith in a, in a way that uh, might seem elementary to somebody that's been following Jesus for 50 years. But both of their articulations would be sufficient mm-hmm. um, in the way that the divines understand it. Uh, just clarity and simplicity. Yep, very good. By the way, I've tried to explain the Trinity to a three-year-old, <laughs> and his response was, I'm tired. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the right response. <laughs> yeah. Um, good to move to section eight then? Mm-hmm. Okay, section eight. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God, who have right unto and interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. Yes. So there's really two um, things that are being addressed here primarily the first of which is um, the original word of God being written in the original languages uh, are authentical and uh, are uh, to settle all matters of controversy, controversy, controversy of religion. Uh, and then also that because not everybody can read Greek and Hebrew, 
uh, we should translate these scriptures into the vernacular or yep. into the vulgar languages. Mm-hmm. And so it's hitting on uh, translations. Yeah. Um, and many of you will know that there are three languages, two primarily, that you find in the Bible. You've got the Old Testament written in Hebrew. There's a few chapters in Daniel and Aramaic. And then you've got the New Testament written in Greek with a little bit of Aramaic, uh, just sentences here or there. Um, but the original languages uh, are... Um, or those, obviously, we have a, a Bible in English that was translated for us from those original languages by translation teams. Uh, and so we'll hit on that in just a moment. But there's many versions that we have of the Bible, but there's one Bible. Yeah. Um, there's, there's one set of authoritative, divinely inspired scriptures, and they've been translated into hundreds of different languages. Um, and so you've got the original manuscripts is uh, what the divines here are talking about. And those are um, what should be what 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 the church should go back to in order to settle controversy. And so that's why it's important that seminaries, for instance, at least that's why that's why they teach their graduates the original languages, because their hope is that, They'll carry on, mm-hmm. uh, if needed, uh, the ability to go back to the original languages to settle matters of controversy or to see what the scriptures originally said. Now, dirty little secret here, uh, you take enough Greek and Hebrew in seminary just to be dangerous. I mean, you're not a Greek and Hebrew scholar coming out by any stretch of the imagination, um, you learn basically how to interact with the languages through tools. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are certainly students that move beyond that if they're gifted in that way. Uh, I'm not one of them. Um, and so I can traffic around maybe a technical commentary and use uh, tools to understand the original languages, but I could not open my Greek and Hebrew and read and understand um, just, you know, like a like I'd be able to understand the English language. Um, but... Uh, I did want to hit on a little bit of the reliability of the copies that we have. Yeah. Um, and it's important to kind of understand some terms here first off. You've got autographs and manuscripts. Autographs are the thing. It's the original. We actually don't have the autographs. Uh, we don't have the man we don't have the papyri that Paul wrote on. What we have are manuscripts. We have copies of the thing. Copies of the autographs. And the divines are even touching on that here. Um, when uh, being immediate, uh, it says the New Testament in Greek, uh, being immediately inspired by God by a singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore, are therefore authentical. Uh, so as in all controversy of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. They're talking here about the manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question before us, is are those manuscripts that we have trustworthy? We don't have the autographs. Um, And I would say uh, that the scriptures are trustworthy on both uh, an objective and an evidential level. Uh, In fact, you could say the Bible is the most well-attested document in history empirically and objectively. And I'd love to just run through some different ancient documents that we have. Uh, and the type of manuscript authority that is behind them. You think of philosophy and Aristotle. Early on, as folks were starting to engage Aristotle's scholarship, 
there were five known manuscripts that that were that were known uh, from Aristotle to be dated fourteen hundred years after the events they took place. Well, fast forward uh, some years, uh, some more scholarship has taken place, more technologies. Now we have a thousand manuscripts, but they're dated with a 1,200-year gap, 1,200-year gap. Um, so 1,200 years before the manuscripts that we have and the actual events that occurred. Um, think about Plato. Uh, originally, 210 manuscripts dated 1,200 years from the events. Uh, you go to history. Pliny the Younger, Pliny the Elder, two historians. Um, and uh, for Pliny the Younger, you've got seven manuscripts that are known, dated with a 750-year gap between the, the young, earliest manuscript we have and the actual events. Pliny the Elder, you've got 200 manuscripts dated 900 years from the events. You go to literature. This is the big one, Homer. 900 manuscripts dated 950 years from the events a few years back. Now we've got 1,700 manuscripts of Homer, and they're dated with a 400-year gap. That's pretty good. Everybody recognizes that Homer uh, and and what we've got written from him can be relied upon without Mm -hmm. really any debate. Um. And so, objectively, we should trust Homer more than the others, right? Because the gap is smaller, and we have many more manuscripts than the others. Now, let's talk about the Bible. You've got, in conservative estimates, 25,000 manuscripts. Some say over 66,000 manuscripts, if we look at all the art and the wrappings and the small pieces that you'll find in um, secondary, uh, secondary places um, that are not technically literature. Um, with a time gap dating between, at the earliest, 50 and 110 years from the event. Um, and so, if you believe the Bible, you're not an idiot. Um, it is the most well-attested ancient document and history, both empirically and objectively, yeah. based on all the other scholarship that we just give automatic credence to. Um, and so I find that to be, an. I mean, we could go down this rabbit trail mm-hmm. for much longer, but that's just a small taste uh, to maybe wet your whistle on the reliability of yeah. the manuscripts that we have. And when we're talking about historical documents, that's normally what we're talking about. So we don't have the actual pen to paper copy that Homer himself wrote of the Iliad, but we have copies that scribes made, which we call manuscripts of the Iliad. And we understand that those copies, how they explain the Iliad to be a faithful representation of Homer's Iliad. Yes. Now, um, but the gap between when those manuscripts are made and when Homer wrote the Iliad is at least twice the gap, if I'm remembering all your numbers correctly, at least twice the gap between the manuscripts made of the biblical text and the actual, you know, Paul or Peter's actual writings in the New Testament. Maybe eight times the gap. Yeah. Um, Because I I think you could make a, a legitimate argument that the gap in the New Testament 
from the man, earliest manuscripts we have to the you know the time of Jesus, uh, fifty years. Um, and you know uh, the earliest we got with Homer is four hundred year gap. Mm, yeah. Um, so when we read the when you read the Iliad in school and they say that's written by Homer, if you believe it's written by Homer, you have more reason to believe in the authenticity of Scripture because it's more highly attested to. Super highly attested yeah. to. Yep. Um, can we talk about manus? Like, I guess zoom out just a skosh and talk about, uh, I guess whether biblical text or non biblical text, whatever. How can we trust manuscripts if we don't have the copy? I mean, is it just it's all we've gotten and it's the next best thing, or is there reason to trust manuscripts beyond that kind of shoulder shrug? No, I mean, I think that this data um, obviously um, is, uh, you know, plays into it. But more than that, I mean, how do you actually trust the manuscripts? Well, if you've got 25,000 at a minimum and 66,000 at a maximum, Mm -hmm. uh, there comes a point where you can start measuring manuscript to manuscript. And um, normally, uh, as men are translating the scriptures, you'll even notice it from time to time in your English Bible, there will be... footnotes, uh, and maybe even a verse or two missing here or there. You'll notice that in the Gospels, and that that missing verse might be placed in the footnotes, and that's because there's disagreement among the manuscripts mm-hmm. um, that we have. And so uh, not only do people normally treat these ancient documents uh, with respect um, and uh, a sense of seriousness where they're trying to copy what they understand, that's their job, basically. Uh, to copy what they understand, but the fact that we have so many manuscripts so we can measure them against one another, and then when there is um, debate, um, that's highlighted. And then the other thing that comes to mind is that most manuscript discrepancies, uh, in fact, I think upwards of 98% of discrepancies that we know about have no major bearing on any significant theological or doctrinal truths. And so most of these differences in manuscripts that we have would not change any of our understanding of the scriptures. And so I think that's just uh, an, maybe an elementary way to answer your question. We no, I, yeah, deeper. I think that's helpful. When you have, let's say, hypothetically, you only had three manuscripts instead of you know 66,000. And uh, within a particular sentence, um, there's there's a word that's different. Well, if two of them have word a and then one of them has word b it's likely that the the scribe who who penned manuscript the third manuscript or whatever and put word b made some mistake but we know that because of the testimony of the other two which highlight what the correct word was and so we can work back i don't know if work backwards is the right way to say this but the presence of so many manuscripts allows us to see where there were clerical errors and what within a pretty high confidence level, the correct text was. And even those cases were, like you said, they, there is disagreement among the manuscripts. It doesn't change any main idea. Yep. Yep. I mean, just if you're finding a manuscript that's 50 years from the date of the events in two different locations from two different, um, transcribers and they're basically the exact same. Yeah. And, you know, that's just a small example of 66,000 potentially. Now, not all 66,000 are the same exact 
books. Some of them are small fragments. Some of them, you know, you get what I'm saying, though. Yeah. Um, and it's like exactly what you're saying. Yep. I got a quick question, and and if you guys don't want to go down to the rabbit trail, it's it's, it's perfectly fine. But do you think that the uh, divines would have worded this section the same had that had it been post Dead Sea Scrolls? And what I mean by that, it's not so much the New Testament being in Greek, but the at least my understanding of the Old Testament is the Hebrew that we base our English off of comes from a text about from about 1100 AD, which is Hebrew with vowels. And the original Hebrew didn't have vowels. It was just consonant-based. Uh, and you have also what is the Greek Septuagint, which is dates about two to 400 AD or BC, um, which in time would have been closer to the original Hebrew text. And so I'm just wondering, uh, and I know I can see the argument and where the divines are going, especially if you look back at section 1.2, where the canon is established with the Old Testament, and that's very much in line with the Jewish canon, uh, which is where they established it, I think about 100 AD, where they said, this is Hebrew only. This is because we found the text in Hebrew. Here's our canon. Um, and I'm just, and, and, and again, if we don't want to go down this trail, we don't have to, but I'm just curious on this section because of the way they worded it. Um, and especially even in the ESV where we have the Old Testament, I, I believe we'll have sections where we'll see LXX, where our translators in the Old Testament aren't using just Hebrew to bring mm-hmm. us the English translation. They are incorporating Greek mm-hmm. translation to bring us the Old yep. Testament in English. To your original question. Yeah, sorry. Um, Compound. No, no, about the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't know if it would change any of the wording here in Section 8. I just think it would bolster what they've already written in terms of um, the reliability of the Scriptures um, in the original languages in the manuscripts that we have um, that we've used to translate the scriptures into the vulgar languages. Um, and so I don't know, I would imagine that just like the rest of the church at large, they, they might have rejoiced right. um, at that finding because, hey, more evidence in our corner for the reliability of the scriptures that we have. Absolutely. And so, yeah, um, yeah. I think that, and and who knows what's what's down the road. Um, I mean, I always kind of smile when somebody says they want to go be a archaeologist. I'm like, really? That's I'd never considered that in my life. But people still want to do that sort of thing, and it's still happening. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it's my understanding that there's some findings happening, even you know, up to present day and, and currently ongoing, that are exciting for the reliability of the scriptures, not just manuscripts found, but also sites being excavated. Yeah, um, that I'm not well aware of or up to date on, but I hear other people talk about, and it does get me thinking. Man, I need to go look into that more because that sounds exciting. You wouldn't want to play in the dirt professionally. I, well, Indiana Jones was a <laughs> pretty cool guy. Um. Other thoughts on Section 8 before we move on? Yeah, I think that's good. Great. 
Section 9 says, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. I think you were talking about this. Um, Yeah, we already talked about it. Scripture interprets itself. Sorry, I got ahead of myself. Um, In section uh, 7, I was talking about that hermeneutic. Uh, but difficult passages that we come across, we can go to clear ones uh, to help us understand the overall thrust of the message of the scriptures. Do you have maybe an example? Um, is there one that comes to mind? Because it's not as though if you're reading a verse over here and you're like, I don't know what that means. And then three weeks later, you're reading a verse over here. It's going to say, hey, that other verse meant this. Yep. You know, it's not like that. Yeah. So. Yeah, so I can think of uh, this past Sunday, for instance, when we were looking at Galatians chapter 3, which can be a little bit confusing, uh, where Paul uh, takes the Judaizers back to Abraham to say, hey, look at how he was justified. He was justified before circumcision and before he even had the law because he was justified by faith. Now, that's not a completely fully orbed argument, maybe, that Paul makes there in those three sentences. It's certainly an argument we can understand, but you can go to Romans 6, and he talks about that exact same thing in even more depth, Um, basically uh, giving uh, what you might call a commentary on Galatians 3 Mm -hmm. in Romans 6 about how before the law came, Abraham was justified. And so that's not an instance where maybe it's a hard or difficult passage to understand, But that's a passage where maybe Paul gives two to three verses, and then you can go somewhere else to get even more uh, material on it. Um, I'm trying to think of something that might be uh, difficult to understand, but then you can go to clear, clear pass. I mean, um, I was thinking more along the line of also appealing to the original languages, how in some sections where maybe a strange um, Hebrew word is used can illuminate perhaps its meaning in another section. I mean, that's like maybe a very technical way that this, uh, that this section might be getting to. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, You know, I, I think about the phrase works of the law mm -hmm. and how did the original first century understand what Paul meant when he said works of the law, because that's been controversial in the past two decades uh, specifically with some theological controversy bubbling up known as the new perspective on Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that, that, that was actually started uh, back in uh, the mid-20th um, century um, uh, by some gentlemen over uh, in, in England, specifically uh, biblical scholars there. But uh, what does Paul mean by works of the law, and how are we to understand that? I think you can go to the Gospels, um, and see how Jesus engages with the Pharisees and the way that he talks about them and their understanding of the way that they were engaged with God's law to help us understand potentially how Paul is using that phrase in a way that leads us to believe that the Jewish people and the Judaizers specifically were using the works of the law in order to gain God's approval and acceptance. Mm -hmm. They were not just identity markers. Um, They were ways unto salvation in their mind. Um, And that's really the crux of the argument there uh, with the new perspective on Paul is, you know, how were these Judaizers understanding 
works of the law and how was Paul understanding um, that same phrase? Mm-hmm. Um, that might be very confusing, by the way. Um, but I think that, you know, we could we can understand some phrases by going and uh, looking at different uh, uh, parts of the scriptures and works of the law. I mean, there's there's got to be like 15 to 20 better examples than that that I can't think of off the top of my head. Um, but maybe maybe I can come with some next week. I've got two examples, uh, one a little bit higher level and then one perhaps a bit more technical. Well, why did you leave me hanging, man? Because you're the, <laughs> I, I thought you would have better Here I ones. I'm rambling <laughs> and nobody can understand me anymore and you got two These may ones. The, these actually may be bad ones. So you don't know yet. But um uh the Sermon on the Mount is in some way Jesus's commentary man, on the law. Perfect example. Um and so that's kind of in the in that vein of of Paul talking about Abraham. I mean that those two examples are pretty clear in scripture saying this is what this other part of scripture means. But then on a more technical level, you find an obscure not obscure, but a difficult to understand passage like <laughs> In Genesis six, this will be our an- annual conversation <laughs> on the Nephilim. <laughs> Dude, you don't want to hear about the rabbit hole I just went down on the Nephilim. But anyway, I actually do, but okay. we can do that in the the post screen. Okay. Um, um, but it has to do with Bigfoot, by the way. But keep going. Oh, oh, I can't wait. Um, but the <laughs> the sons of God. What does that mean? Well, this this word that's translated uh, as God there or son son of God. Um, can also be plural, sons of the gods. And in Psalm 82, um, it, it, uh, Psalm 82 uses the similar word to talk about um, um, God being enthroned above the gods. And so is Psalm 82 referring, like ascribing reality to other deities and God being one among many. I don't have it open in front of me, so I'm getting it probably a little bit wrong. What most folks would say about Psalm 82 is that, um, no, it says like praise him all you gods or something like that. What Psalm 82 is, is saying when it, it refers to all you gods is um, human rulers. And so what, how we understand this strange Hebrew word that's translated as gods to mean human rulers who are so haughty as to make themselves gods um, can help us understand where we see a phrase that um, son of God, son of the son of God or sons of the gods in, in Genesis six might have just a more benign meaning as, um, as, as, you know, human rulers or, or princes who would make themselves gods sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying you have to accept my, uh, uh, that that interpretation of Genesis six that actually comes from Meredith Klein, not from me. So yeah, um, but the way that phrase is being interpreted elsewhere, yes, exactly, you to believe yes. that it's interpreted uniformly through the scriptures, yeah. potentially, yeah. or at least can help us understand what something mysterious in Genesis six might mean. I yeah. think as a principle, yeah, I think that that the principle of usage, yeah, it's right on. This will refer back to even the earlier principle of those things aren't can be not necessarily clear. Yeah, because I would probably take the same principle, but come to a different conclusion, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of a uh, regarding that particular topic. Um, but the principle is still valid yeah. about scripture interpreting scripture. It's I think it's just a matter of we should just have a whole episode on the Nephilim, G G. Yeah, and we'll just talk about it. <laughs> we'll have to just build that up and yeah. just be, and just be game on at some point <laughs> with the sons of God. It'll but be the good. Sermon on the Mount is a perfect example where Jesus says, "You have heard that it was said, but I say to you." Yeah, and he's actually interpreting the scriptures in the way they should have always been interpreted. Yep. 
And so, you know, that's a little bit different because he's taking uh, a, a modern day controversy or he's addressing a modern day audience in the Sermon on the Mount and giving them a new perspective. But as we read the Sermon on the Mount, we can go back and look at the Old Testament and actually think about it through the eyes of motivation, mm-hmm. motivational structures, not just behavior, Yeah, um, which Jesus allows us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. The other thing I'd say is this is also pushing back against Rome, uh, this section here, um, because Rome would say, uh, we speak clearly about God's yes. word. God doesn't speak clearly about his word. And the divines are coming along and saying, well, hold on, buddy, uh, to the Pope. Um, you know, God does speak clearly. And if it's difficult to understand in one passage, he speaks clearly in other passages. And so they're really putting an end to clericalism uh, and highlighting the priesthood of all believers once again here uh, in section nine. You don't need Rome. You just yep. need God's word to understand and, it. And I just... You know, so some bona fides here. Like, um, I don't think we are um, arguing in bad faith here. The Baltimore Catechism, which is um, part of the Catholic Church, asks, how can we know the true meaning of the doctrines contained in the Bible? The answer, we can know the true meaning, ellipses, from the Catholic Church, which has been authorized by Jesus Christ to explain his doctrines and which is preserved from error in its teachings by the special assistance of the Holy Ghost. So in direct opposition here, the divines are saying that Scripture is what interprets Scripture. Scripture alone, That's this is actually more a commentary on section 8. Scripture alone interprets Scripture, and Scripture is plainly clear, I guess that's redundant, on the the core things that need to be believed for salvation. And the idea that creeds and church confessions are subordinate to the scriptures, um, where I don't know if the Roman Catholic Church would agree with that. Um, In fact, I'm fairly certain that they would probably, with the Baltimore Confession there, say, you know, this, what we have said um, is, is what the scriptures teach. Now, the confession, Westminster Confession of Faith would make the same statement. Like, we believe that we are giving a faithful articulation of the doctrines and the theologies outlined in the scriptures, but they're going to great lengths to say, at the end of the day, you submit to the scriptures, not to this council, uh, not to the Roman Catholic Church. Um, The scriptures are your final authority. Do want to get here to section 10 as we close out the evening. Um, although I guess some folks aren't listening to this in the evening. It might be first thing in the morning. They might not be listening after we talked about the works of the law either, but (laughs) welcome back people. Section 10 says the Supreme judge by which all controversies, controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined. And in which sentence we are to rest can be no other, but the Holy, Holy spirit speaking in the scriptures. Yep, just getting back to what we are just talking about, the supreme judge and religious controversies, the scriptures. And so Rome um, would legislatively make laws mm-hmm. um, and church law. I mean, that's what Rome does. Uh, they interpret the scriptures. They implement church law. The Protestant church would come along and say, our job is not legislative, it's yes. declarative. Yeah. We have a declarative authority. We can tell you what the scriptures mean um, and help you interpret them and help you understand them, but we can't legislate anything. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that that might be a good way to think about the way that the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church operate in a different fashion, where the Roman Catholic Church, um, no new commands, but legislatively they might make um, proclamations that if you don't hold to, you're you're inside or outside the church. Yeah. Um, and Protestants would say, uh, we're making uh, declarative statements about what is true from the scriptures. And at the end of the day, your conscience is bound by the scriptures, not necessarily yes. what one branch of the church has to That's say. That's huge. Your conscience is bound by the scriptures alone. When the Pope declares um, the assumption of Mary, all Catholics are bound by conscience to agree and believe in the assumption of Mary. And if not, I, I don't. I guess I don't know what happens. But you're you're bound by conscience to hold to that. The Westminster divines here would say that the only thing that can bind your conscience, the only thing that that has that level of authority over you, is Scripture itself. Yeah, and with legislation, if the church is doing that, what I meant to say with no new commands is they're making new commands. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, you know. I, I want to be careful here, and maybe I've already overstepped my bounds. I don't want to misrepresent the Roman Catholic Church. I'm no expert in you know the Roman Catholic Church by any stretch of the imagination, um, and so just a very uh, cursory knowledge of uh, some of their theology. Um, but I don't think that um, I don't know. Gee, you kind of grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, so um, hate to uh, dive into you know a very long rabbit hole there. But would you say that that's a, a fair representation? Uh, you, you probably need to do a little bit of an episode, but uh, on that in general. But I, I think the easiest way uh, to uh, get your hands around that makes sense of where where Rome is coming from is it. My understanding is that the Roman Catholic Church believes they are the body of Christ and the Pope is the vicar of Christ. Mm -hmm. So when the Pope says something like you talked about Mary, it's as if Jesus himself Mm -hmm. is declaring these things to be so. Because in their understanding, they are his body on earth. Uh, and once, if you can get into that mindset, a lot of the things that Rome does, while we may disagree with it, you can kind of understand that it's a trickle down of this mindset of who they believe themselves to be on planet Earth at this time, or even throughout history. So, y- yeah, and and again, that can you can see how that can run. It can get very contentious when you have folks saying there's something above you. Yeah. Because the understanding is, well, we are, the church is the body of Christ. And you have reformers saying, well, there's something above you. And the, the church is like, well, it's that and us. Because in there, that we, and, and you can feel the tension in the Counter Reformation with saying, you know, we don't want to say that the Bible is below us but we are going to put ourselves kind of on equal footing with or tradition, what the church says, because our understanding of who we are as an institution is that we are Christ's body. Um, and so that, I don't know if that helps, but you can kind of see why there's so much tension when, when the reformers are saying, well, no, 
scriptures above you. Mm. Um, yeah, that's that's good context, and that I mean that's that's kind of what I, I mean I knew I knew that I think, and help, thank you for explaining that. And so it, it's helping me think like when the Pope speaks officially. I know there's times where he's not speaking infallibly, and other times when he is. Mm-hmm. And when he speaks officially, he's speaking infallibly, and he's speaking for God. Yes. That's his understanding yep. of what he's doing. And so when the Pope speaks in an official, infallible way, you could say he's legislating um, a certain doctrine, a certain belief uh, for the Catholic Church, which believes, right, I mean, that they are the protectors and uh, the, the true expression of Christ's body here on earth. Um, and that's just completely opposite from what Protestants would hold to and what the divines are really pushing back on to say, hep. I mean, they've got some special words for the Pope later on in the confession, as <laughs> yeah. you know, gee, which might, you know, some people, like I spicy. wouldn't call it this, but some people might call it intemperate, um, <laughs> yeah. temperate language I wanna, from the divines. I want to just point, just say this to the, the listeners on this matter. And I know we privately have had this conversation is that when we're talking about Rome and the Catholic church, uh, we're specifically kind of talking about Roman doctrine, or at least our understanding of Roman doctrine, not all of hardly any, probably of your Catholic neighbors and friends would necessarily subscribe to this if you pushed them on it. Um, and certainly in America, American Catholicism, it's, it's, it's kind of its own little thing when you, when you're dealing with Catholicism. So just as a kind of a, a, a reminder to be generous and patient and, and now don't assume that your Catholic coworkers or neighbors all have this understanding of what's going on uh, with the Catholic church. They may, but it's very possible that they don't. Yep. But I think I think to wrap this one up too, that's a great word, G. Um, and we've already said it. I've said it probably three times now. But Rome, when the Pope speaks legislatively, is making doctrine. And Protestants are coming along and saying, we just declare what's already in God's word. Yeah. And your conscience isn't bound to our dictate, um, but to the word of God. Mm-hmm. Um and so it's it's a it's a distinction, um, sometimes hard to understand. But the Protestant Protestant Church would also say no one's speaking infallibly for for the Lord. Uh, the Lord speaks for Himself infallibly in His Word. Yeah. Does not need a Pope or mm-hmm. a representative here on earth to speak authoritatively for Him. We're already. Well, I'm glad we're kind of like, we're going to probably maybe break the record for the podcast. Uh, and I think of no better episode than on the scriptures. Is this going to be to, longer than the chicken episode? To break the chicken <laughs> episode record. Uh, but I did have this final question um, for you, Michael. And, and again, hopefully I, I'll phrase it correctly. But we just went through like 10 sections on scripture. And the one, uh, as I was kind of reading through, I, I thought about this question is, do we on this side of Christ, um, is there a caution that the same kind of warning that Jesus gives in John five thirty nine, where say, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Is there a, a, a caution there of everything we talked about, the scriptures and the use of the scriptures um, is true, but 
we don't want to detach it from from Christ. Mm-hmm. Because I think that can also be, and I know we, I used the word danger a couple of weeks ago, and, and you're like, maybe caution. And I agree, maybe caution, but I can see how with us having such high views of Scripture that in a sense we are coming dangerously close to being the Sadducees and Pharisees, but this side of the cross, mm-hmm. because we such have we such have a high view of the written word yeah. that potentially we're, you know, we, we miss them. Yeah, I think that's a great caution. And, you know, obviously the scriptures are God's revelation to us. And so it is important to treat them with honor, respect, and try to um, diligently search them as carefully as we can. And that's what the divines, of course, are, are laying out here in chapter one. But I also think it's important to recognize the scriptures are not an end in and of themselves. Yeah. Uh, they're a means to an end. Uh, God has given us this revelation not so that we could necessarily focus on revelation, but so that we might turn our gaze upon Christ and his plan of salvation through the ages. And so... um Certainly a great encouragement and maybe a, a great one to end on that, you know, while we want to be careful about how we interpret and think about the scriptures and revelation at the end of the day, um, it's meant to point us to Jesus yep. and to stoke our worship and admiration and affections for him. Yep. My youth pastor when I was growing up said you can never start to see the Bible as a textbook because once you've started to see the Bible as a textbook, you've removed Jesus from it altogether and you've yep. forgotten that. The whole point of the scriptures is to point you to Jesus. Yep. And in Hebrews 4, I mean, this is the only book that you have that is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Um, and, you know, it, it cuts us to the quick. Um, and there's there's certainly a divine aspect to the scriptures that you've got to pay attention to and yep. lead you to Jesus. Yep. Well, we'll close it there, folks. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of TGC Midweek. We'll be back next week diving into Chapter 2 of the Westminster Confession. If you have questions or comments, you can send those to questions at trinitygracesa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, we'll see you later.